The origin of rice, or should I say origins, plural, is quite prismatic. It is also contentious. It is political, very touchy, and fundamental to the identity of many cultures, and therefore tightly tied to both collective mythologies and heartfelt soliloquies. Above all, it remains an unanswered question. If an answer is found, it will most likely integrate a wide range of factors, not just archaeology and genetics, but also a deeper understanding of what we mean when we say domestication or even civilization. One man who knows this story as well as anyone is Dr. Dorian Fuller, an archaeobotanist from University College London. I caught up with him in November 2013 at the 7th Annual International Rice Genetics Symposium in Manila, Philippines. By the way, when he uses the term wild rice, he is referring to the ancient progenitors of our modern-day rice, not the lake-grown rice harvested by native North Americans. Dr. Fuller, let's start at the beginning. How do we even start this story? Let's say the story starts with the human interaction with rice. Uh, so that set the stage prior to that. So modern humans leave Africa and people the world, and they come to Asia, and they do, they're doing that in the Pleistocene period, which is the Ice Age, the glacial period. So the world is much colder and drier. And what that means is that uh, the wild forms of rice uh, that grow in Asia today are basically in refugia. So they've retreated into mainland Southeast Asia. About 18,000 years ago, the world starts to gradually get warmer. The ice caps melt, and lots of wild species expand northwards and follow the kind of retreating climate. So wild rice migrates northwards into China. Uh, at the same time that the glaciers are melting, the sea levels are rising. And so that's eating up tropical lowlands that, that are now submerged along coastlines, again, pushing plants sort of inland. So what this does is it creates a process by which this wild species essentially is migrating over time and into the things like the Yangtze River. So that's creating a whole new set of genetic diversity in wild rice uh, in China essentially for the first time. In the Yangtze Valley, we have hunter-gatherers, so they're using wild resources, and this new wetland grass comes into their environment, and so they start encountering and using rice. And the evidence we have from China suggests that there's very low-scale use for a long time. There's no reason to think any of that is cultivated or domesticated. It's just in the environment, people use it a little bit. And then the story really begins eight or 9,000 years ago. And during that period, people seem to really start to in parts of the Yangtze Valley settle down and sort of start to build settlements that are more permanent. So rather than being mobile and moving seasonally, they may still be somewhat mobile, but having, they have major home bases. And associated with those sites is when we think we have the earliest cultivation of rice. It's still not a major food. So I've worked at a site uh, in uh, Zhejiang province called uh, Tinloshan, which actually dates from about 7,000 years ago. So it's a little bit later in the story. But it's clear from that site that the majority of of food, the majority of plants that we find on that site are acorns, water chestnuts, also called water caltrops, uh, and then rice. Um, so there, people are heavily gathering wild resources, but they're also gathering wild rice, and they're starting to manage the environment that wild rice grows in, so they're cultivating it. They're probably planting the seeds, they're planting the seeds in slightly different microenvironments from where it's growing naturally, so they're expanding the kind of geographical local range of that rice. And so between eight and 9,000 years ago, people are starting to settle down and starting to cultivate rice in a small way as a supplement to their sort of hunter-gatherer, fisher lifestyle. 
And somehow rice goes from small-scale cultivation to playing a much bigger role. There's a number of, of factors, and one is people settling down, which means more population staying in one place. If you're going to do that, you need to have storable food supplies. Now, you can store things like acorns, and they're clearly doing that, and water chestnuts. But what's different in, 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 the, in the context of China is that they're adding rice to that. And one of the things about rice that is different is that it's, it's more readily open to manipulation. So because it's a, an annual plant, because it grows and produces grains after a few months, you can plant it, you can expand its range, and you can create a surplus that's a bit more predictable. So it gives you a, a sort of extra bit of surplus that then you can do other things with. So you can support larger families, you can support craft producers. If you have enough extra rice, you can trade it for other things. And so one of the things we also see at these early settlements at, at this time is the beginnings of elaboration in ceramics, where they start to make different forms of ceramics and stuff gets decorated, art objects, so things that are carved, which, which ultimately develops into the jade tradition. So there's various lines of evidence that suggest you have the, the emergence of a kind of social ecology that's interested in prestige, and then being able to produce a kind of predictable surplus of a food resource like rice would give some individuals, some families, some households an edge. One of the challenges of wild rice that's growing in the wetlands in this area is that it's a, it likes to grow in standing water. And although it's a short-lived plant, it's actually a perennial. So if the water supply is really good, it produces more shoots and more leaves and not as much grain. It just keeps growing. If the water conditions get a bit poor, so a bit sort of drought stressed, then it will produce seed. So one of the first things that people have to have to do as they get in, into rice that they must have realized is that the stuff that grows in the kind of drier margins is producing more grain. Uh, and so uh, what you do is you start to plant your rice on the drier wetland margins, or you start to make artificial wetland margins that you can drain yourself. Uh, and so at about um, 6,000 years ago, we have a number of sites uh, in this region, in fact, just outside of what's called Suzhou City, which is the sort of first city west of Shanghai, due west of Shanghai, where you actually have preserved early rice field systems. And they're carving little oval, oval to rectangular fields, which are only uh, one and a half, two meters across. So tiny little things, the size of a small table. And they're uh, 30, 40 centimeters deep. Uh, but, what, but what that allows is very tight control of things like water and soil conditions. Because of course, if you're going to also produce a productive crop, you need to pack more plants in and you need to have fertile soil. So they're dumping their, the sweepings of their hearths and the homes into these early fields. Uh, and then these fields are connected by little sort of channels to a few deeper pits, which then allow you to drain the water out into something deeper. So one of the first things they're doing is they're starting to create an artificial landscape where they can really manipulate the soil and water conditions to produce more rice and more grain. And that set of conditions is uh, forcing the rice plant to change. So the rice plant is evolving to suit those conditions. So some of the key genetic changes that the geneticists talk about as domestication traits are genes that create a tall, erect, straight rice plant. Uh, and then something else that characterizes domesticated cereals versus their wild ancestors is seed dispersal. So they lose natural seed dispersal where the grains fall off the plant. And that's replaced by plants that are harvested by people and then threshed. So the plant is adapting to being, to being managed and manipulated by people, but as a result, they're getting something that is getting better and better in terms of yields and productivity. But 
it's also forcing people to put more and more labor into preparing those fields and looking after that plant. So there's a kind of back and forth in which the rice plant gets better and yields more, but then it requires a bit more human effort and labor. And so the other thing we see in the same period, really at about 6,000 years ago, is the abandonment of some of the wild foods that they had been using. So things like the acorns rapidly decline and then disappear completely. Now, you're mostly piecing this story together through archaeologic sites. I'm interested in, in how you do this work. I work on archaeological excavations with typical archaeologists, excavators, and they're excavating settlement sites of past human activity, which are full of pottery and stone tools. And, but rather than picking up a trowel and digging the soil, I direct them to put a lot of the soil they dig up into large bags, and we do a process called flotation, where you basically add your archaeological sediment to water, you stir it up, and you can either do it manually in buckets or with a build a machine to do it. And so we're looking for the grains and the seeds and the seed fragments and the bits of chaff. And so I, once that stuff is floated and dried, you sit at a microscope, a low-powered microscope, 10 times magnification, binocular microscope, and you sort through picking out the seeds and seed fragments. And so we have a large comparative collection of modern crops and modern weed seeds and modern wild seeds. Anyway, so yeah, you pull your seeds out and you compare them to known modern uh, species and try to identify them down as, as best you can. And so we're, we're finding two kinds of remains. We're finding both the grains. The other bit of rice we get is, is the spikelet base. So it's at the very base of the husk of rice and it's um, where the rice spikelet attaches to the plant. And in the spikelet base is where we can tell whether it's a wild type that shatters naturally because when that's the case, you have a clean scar, uh, and, it's, it's a, and it's a nice smooth break. It's an obsidian scar, whereas the domesticated rice, the genetic changes that have happened have turned off that obsidian layer, and so it sticks to the plant, which means it has to be broken off by human threshing, so you get a big, broken, torn-out scar. Because they're so small, and because they were waste from the dehusking that happened every day for people eating rice, they produced a lot of this stuff, and because they were small, they got swept in the fire a lot. So we get quite... We get them in the hundreds, actually, in some of these samples. And then we can use those to characterize how domesticated or wild the rice was. Uh, this being archaeology, it can't be controversy-free. The big controversy, and I'm on, strongly on one side of it, but I'll try to characterize it. The orthodoxy has been characterized plant domestication as a rapid process. So essentially, hunter-gatherers decide to start cultivating plants and harvesting them in a new way, and they're domesticated within a couple of human generations. So literally between 20 and 100 years were the estimates. The other side of the controversy is that, no, it's actually a slow, protracted process. Uh, it's much more of, of what I would refer to as entangled, where there's a lot of feedbacks, a lot of unintentionality on the part of people. Um, and the plants are changing very slowly. And so the process takes more like 3,000 years. Because it takes so long, it's, it's, it's much more likely to be happening in fits and starts in multiple places. Uh, and so it's a kind of... It's, it's more, more of a mosaic, so more parts of the world and more communities were involved in early cultivation, and there are failed experiments and this and that, and it's a slow process. Um, and the evidence that's coming out, both on the Chinese rice side, but also from wheat and barley in the Near East, I think strongly points towards the slow, entangled, and multicentric view of, of these centers of agricultural origins. But that's still hotly debated, and there's, uh, well, the rice data also plays a role in that, debate, and um, some of the rice data we've produced uh, created a certain amount of debate and, and controversy in China, because the assumption again there was, well, 
once you have rice, 8,000 years ago, it's agriculture. It's fully full-blown rice agriculture is domesticated. And we came out with data that's, well, well hang on, it's still mostly wild rice at, at uh, six and a half thousand years ago, and then it's or f 7,000 years ago. So in fact, it's a slower and late, domestication is late. If you're looking for the tail end of the process, then domestication is late. Your motivation or passion in this area comes mostly from what? In some ways, I'm increasingly interested in the, the feedbacks, the kind of entang enmeshed way, the entanglements between what people do and the changes in the plant. But genetic changes happen in the plant because the plant is evolving to adapt to what people are doing. And as a result of those genetic changes, it forces people to change in different ways to kind of adapt to what, how the plant has changed. And so there's this feedback in which you get entangled. And they're co-creating each other, so they're co-evolving in a way. So you end, at the end, the end result, you have human societies which are really dependent on rice, and they can't, they can't escape it. You could substitute a different crop for it at some stage, but they're kind of dependent on agriculture. It's a kind of irreversible. So you're wedded to it. And, and you know, wet rice is a very labor-intensive practice. It takes a lot of man hours. It's much easier to go out and hunt and gather and collect acorns and store those in fish and things. So they get really, so in that sense, it, it creates a lot more labor and work for people. But it, gives, it also produces this reliable surplus which allows people to develop civilization and do other things that are culturally interesting. You know, rice supports the, the most densely populated parts of the world, and it has done for a very, very long time. And there are parts of the world that have had a lot of cultural creativity and a lot of cultural and civilizational diversity. Um, and rice has played a, plays a role in all of those civilizations and traditions, but the, the, the place it fits into food systems and how it's cooked and into concepts of, of uh, you know, food and ritual and things is quite different. So we can, we can look at the same crop and it's got lots of different cultural histories uh, and stories to tell. And so I think it's quite, quite an exciting one to work on, in addition to being very economically important and feeding lots of people and supporting these population centers. At the 7th Annual International Rice Genetics Symposium in Manila, Philippines, I'm Michael Joyce for Erie Radio.